KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio In Depth. I'm Matt Leon. So there has been building momentum in many circles for the idea of adding states to the Union, specifically the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico. Now, we wanted to dig into this. How likely is this to happen? What would have to happen? How would it change the political landscape? What are D.C. and Puerto Rico missing out on by not being states? So to learn more about this, we reached out to Dr. Miguel Glatzer. He is an associate professor of political science at LaSalle University. We learn more background, more about the process and the ramifications if it were to happen. This is really fascinating. Give a listen. So I kind of like to start just kind of with your opinion. When we talk about the idea of statehood for Puerto Rico or Washington, D.C. in the relatively near future, do you think we will see it or is this an exercise we will just continue to talk about uh, for years to come? A lot depends on what happens in the Senate and in particular whether the Democrats end up giving up the filibuster, killing the filibuster. Republicans currently are unlikely to support statehood for Puerto Rico and D.C., even though the Republican Party in the past had supported the notion of statehood for Puerto Rico. You can go back and find presidents, Republican presidents voicing support for that. But today there's a, there's a sense, certainly that D.C. would favor the Democrats and statehood for D.C. would provide uh, the Democrats with two additional senators. Many analysts think that Puerto Rico might also produce two Democratic senators. But ironically, when you speak to political scientists in Puerto Rico, that's not at all clear, right, that it would come down that way. So it it could conceivably not hurt the Republicans as much as they think it would do so, right, to uh, to provide to provide statehood to to Puerto Rico. But the the fact of the matter is that currently the Republicans do fear that, right? And so so they would be very likely to use a filibuster to block a bill that would provide statehood to these two political entities. We have a lot of talk right now about this issue, in part because the Democrats control the House, the Senate, right? And the White House, right? The Dems might kill the filibuster. President Biden is wary of doing so uh, for good reason. Once you kill it, then the next time uh, the Republicans have control of the Senate, uh, the Democrats won't be able to block legislation, right? That would be a a big loss uh, for the Dems. But at the same time, Biden really wants to go big on COVID relief, on infrastructure, on climate change. And were he to be stymied by the parliamentarian in the Senate saying you can't use reconciliation for as much as you'd like, then I think there's a real possibility that the Democrats might might give up on the filibuster. Then they would have the power to grant statehood to D.C. and Puerto Rico. To that point, is it just a simple voting on a bill? This doesn't involve two-thirds of the states or any of the things you have to have for a constitutional amendment. It would just simply be a bill like we're used to making its way through and signed by Joe Biden? Yes. Yes, it would. To grant statehood... Uh, simply requires an act of Congress, right, with the support of the president. There is a wrinkle, however, with respect to D.C., and that is the 23rd Amendment, which provides for votes for the Electoral College to residents of D.C. D.C. statehood 
would promote would be a shrinking of the District of Columbia to just the White House, the Capitol, the Supreme Court, the Mall, right? Uh, were D.C. to become a state, you would still have a federal district, but it would be a very, very tiny district, right? However, you would have the president and his family, his or her family, as residents of that now shrunken capital district. And so there's big debate about whether that shrunken district would still have three electoral college votes, which would be a very ironic kind of position, right? Where you're basically giving just the president and his family, the only residents of this of this shrunken district, uh, three college votes. The Congressional Research Service produced a report saying they think that that, that would be the case. Right? And so if you wanted to to get rid of that, then you would need you would need a constitutional amendment that would that would change that. That would be hard to do, right? But the Dems might still nonetheless say, you know, even if we were to have this very odd shrunken district of Columbia with giving uh, the president basically three electoral college votes, it might still be worth it, given the larger principles at play of giving American citizens the right to participate fully in, in national politics, right? Oh, so that's that's the one wrinkle in the DC uh, in the in, in the DC proposals, and that is really really fascinating. And I'm surprised I hadn't heard about that before. How much do you think, aside from as you pointed out so well, how the Republicans look at this as something that would probably be a net negative for them? How much does this push for statehood? Is it hurt kind of by inertia, by the fact that we've been at fifty states? Since the 50s, since what, Truman, Eisenhower, maybe, you know, was in office and people are just used to that idea. And it sounds silly, but it's a nice round number, 50 states. Do you feel like that inertia of American society is playing against this as well? I think in the past that has certainly been the case, right? We tend to see political reform in the U.S., occurring in spurts, not necessarily as a continuous process, right? So political scientists will talk about these small windows of change where you have rapid movement uh, and expansion and then periods of stasis and stability. So you can think of, for example, the expansion of voting rights to African-Americans, right? During the civil rights era, Uh, that was a moment of very significant change. And then you get periods where not much changes, right? Uh, Or if you think of the idea of direct election of senators, right, um, where the people directly elect their senators, that occurred already in the 20th century. The right of women to get the right to vote, right? These these small moments where you get big change. What that means is that it's quite common in the U.S. for there to be periods of stability where where not much changes, and then all of a sudden, in a compressed amount of time, you get pretty big change. I think the issue of statehood for D.C. and Puerto Rico was on the back burner for a long time. It wasn't something that the hundreds of millions of Americans outside of D.C. and Puerto Rico cared particularly about. There is now growing support. There's some some recent polling suggests now that you have more support for D.C. statehood and, and Puerto Rico statehood uh, nationally than you have had before. And I think part of that comes from this renewed attention to who has the right to participate right, to questions of, of equality and political participation. And so that's that's gaining a bit more traction. On the other hand, it's also very, very true that the increase in support nationally for statehood of D.C. and Puerto Rico is occurring amongst Democrats, not amongst Republicans. Amongst Republicans, it's actually going down. And that reflects 
these partisan calculations about who would benefit politically, right? So I think it's worthwhile thinking about partisan considerations, who would win, who would lose, and then on a separate plane, question, larger questions about who should have rights to representation and equality amongst, amongst American citizens. To that point, what are residents of Puerto Rico and D.C. losing out on by not being states? Well, in D.C., there's um, a sense that they miss out on having votes in Congress. There are over 700,000 residents in D.C., people in D.C. That's more than the population of Vermont or Wyoming. And so as, the, as that famous, uh, the famous license plates in D.C. say, right, taxation without representation, uh, there's a sense that they're, they're second-class citizens in the, in the U.S. framework, right, and that there's a sort of moral principle at stake. More concretely, while it's true that D.C. is able to elect a mayor and a city council, uh, that was a, a reform passed by Congress a few decades ago, that law allows Congress to override decisions by the mayor and city council, right? They have the ability to veto decisions by that, by that body. And so there's a sense there, too, that, uh, again, they, they lack the full powers, right, that would come from being, from being a state. Most recently, there was concern that the mayor of D.C. wasn't able to call up the National Guard, right, the way a governor of a state would, right? Uh, she had to, to ask the federal government to intervene. Uh, that would not be the case if D.C. was a state. When it comes to Puerto Rico, the issues are a little bit different. They include many of the same issues as, as were mentioned for D.C. Uh, regarding representation and voting. But because Puerto Rico is a commonwealth, a territory, it has had exemption from some federal rules. So, for example, it's had exemption from some federal taxes, from some federal corporate taxes, Opponents of statehood in Puerto Rico say, hey, this might hurt us, right, if we have to now pay those kinds of corporate taxes. That, that was one of the advantages of that, of that was to try to promote economic development in, in Puerto Rico, which is, of course, uh, not connected to the mainland. Transportation is more expensive. There are federal rules regarding U.S. shipping, controlling the trade between the U.S. mainland and Puerto Rico that increase costs, right? So, so Puerto Rico is at a at a competitive disadvantage given its location. And some of these exemptions from federal corporate taxes were designed to try to, to level the playing field a little bit. But those would go away if Puerto Rico were to become a state. Similarly, the minimum wage would go up in Puerto Rico if it became a state. It's less economically productive than the U.S. as a whole and, and less economically productive, less wealthy on a per capita basis than even the poorest states in the U.S., like Mississippi and Alabama, and so it has a lower minimum wage. It might not be great for Puerto Rico, right, to adopt the same standard, right, as the rest of the U.S. does. Statehood, however, would also increase Medicaid funding and certain disability payments, right, other kinds of federal transfers to Puerto Rico. So when you're looking at Puerto Rico, you know, pro or, pro or con becoming a state, there are a whole bunch of changes that would emerge uh, uh, from, from statehood, some of which would hurt, some of which might benefit Puerto Rico, and different people come down differently on where the net the net benefit is. I, I think overwhelmingly residents in D.C., and you talked about the license plates, they want statehood. Do we know in Puerto Rico, does it play as universally? Are they, is, you know, is it overwhelmingly in favor of being a state, or is it a, a much trickier situation from a, a public support standpoint? 
it's trickier than in D.C. So in D.C., you're absolutely right. Uh, a, a recent statehood referendum in D.C. produced 86% support for D.C. becoming becoming a state. For Puerto Rico, however, uh, a November 2020 non-binding referendum, right? These are all non-binding ref- referenda. The November 2020 referendum in Puerto Rico had 52% of the popula- of the voters, right, uh, who participated saying yes to statehood and 48% saying no, right? They wanted Commonwealth status. So Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico's politics have been very interesting because you've had a movement in favor of independence, splitting from the U.S. completely. That has experienced decline, but it's still there. Small, small levels of support now, but historically that was an important, important element. And then as this, as this poll suggests, Puerto Rico is pretty evenly divided, right, on whether to, to become a state or not, right? Ultimately, the decision rests with Congress, right? So all of these polls are non-binding. But you have had important national officials, Obama most most recently, but also and most prominently as president, but also Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, Bill Clinton when he was president, arguing that the people in Puerto Rico should decide, right? And then, and then Congress should act. If this were to ever happen, do you think? we would be in a situation where it would be both or none. Would we look at them individually? You know, like DC's much, you know, much more people want it than they do in Puerto Rico. So would maybe the focus become on DC and, you know, just do that. And then maybe then we take a look at Puerto Rico once it becomes more of a tangible possibility, or do you think they would always be kind of coupled together? They would be most likely separate bills. When we look at the bills that have been introduced in, in Congress, uh, you have separate bills for D.C. and separate bills for Puerto Rico. They are bunched together in certainly the, the popular discourse a little bit, uh, in part because the moral principle is the same, right? Shouldn't all U.S. citizens right, residing on U.S. territory have the right to, to full representation? This does exclude some of the some of the the farther islands of the U.S., right, U.S. Marshall Islands, right, these kinds of things. But but Puerto Rico is by far the largest of these entities, both in terms of population and, and geography. And so there's a sense that uh, if you want to make serious progress in, in solving this issue, then D.C. and Puerto Rico should be should be your priorities, right? But they are separate bills, right? That's That's very true. And because of the different nature of the predictions of who would be elected if these if these two if these two areas were to become states you could conceivably imagine right different different politics around this right that said even though there's much less of a guarantee that Puerto, that Puerto Rico would elect two democratic senators republicans in the, in a, in the recent election cycles Mitch McConnell recently senators and running for office in Arizona have criticized the idea of statehood for Puerto Rico, right? Saying this is part of a radical democratic agenda, right? You mentioned some of the population numbers. I mean, if you want to play devil's advocate to that, isn't it easy to say, well, more people live in D.C. than live in Wyoming. So why in the world does nobody blink an eye at the fact that Wyoming's a state and has way disproportional effect on things than Washington, D.C.? I mean, if you really wanted to... I understand most of these shots are fired in partisan manner and they're not supposed to be in good faith or whatever. But when you look about, you talk about the playing field and the concern about Republicans, Democrats have the exact same concern of what 
the playing field is now electorally, no? Yes, and, and, and uh, things are only going to get worse in terms of the demographic imbalance in the Senate going forward. We have the disparities between the large states and the small states in terms of population are only getting bigger. So Texas is growing in population, right? California over time has been growing in population. It's true that in recent years, you've had, you've had some out-migration from California, um, but those are growing in numbers that far outweigh the Wyomings, the North Dakotas, South Dakotas, right? Idaho, Vermont, right? Maine, right? And so what this means is that by 2040, right, just 20 years from now, half of the U.S. population will control 84% of the seats in the Senate and the other half only 16%, right? So you'll have a constellation of small states that having massive overrepresentation in in the Senate uh, collectively. They do individually, right? But when you add in the various populations, you get these, these extraordinary numbers, right? And there is an inbuilt bias towards the Republican Party in these demographic shifts, in these dem- demographic trends. Why? Because the small states tend on average to be older, wider, and more rural. So yes, you have some small states like Vermont and Delaware uh, that vote Democratic, but on average, your your average small state tends to vote Republican. Your average large state will tend to vote Democratic, right? These states become large in population in part because of the growth of of their big cities. So imagine a situation in 2040 where Texas has gone blue, because of the continued growth of Houston and San Antonio and Dallas and Austin, Florida may very well have gone gone blue by then as well. New York and California will continue to do so, right? So imagine these these blue large states and then these red small states with a with this massive imbalance in representation in the Senate. So one reason why the Democrats are excited about potentially adding Puerto Rico and D.C. is that it would perhaps help slow this looming time bomb, right? Uh, that the Democrats face in the Senate. It's interesting going back to Puerto Rico, and you you brought up that non-binding referendum uh, that was November 2020, so very recently. And it's interesting to me that it still was almost 50-50, given all that Puerto Rico went through in the recent hurricanes. And at least to me as an outsider, it did not appear that Puerto Rico got the attention from the federal government to recover I would have thought that might have pushed the arrow much more towards statehood and getting on a level ground here for when we get devastated by a natural disaster or whatever, uh, but but not really. Yes, it, uh, I find the same. I find the same the same issue really curious. Right, part of it has to do with the fact that Puerto Rico has a different political party system than the U.S. does. The two principal parties in, in Puerto Rico, there, there are more than two that, that receive substantial numbers of votes, but the, the two most important ones are the New Progressive Party and the Popular Democratic Party. And they're perhaps a little bit odd in terms of what we might what we might expect. So the New Progressive Party that has had a, quite a lot of support over the last few years has been pro-statehood, but is conservative. And then the Popular Democratic Party tends to be a bit more liberal, but has been pro-Commonwealth, right? And so the natural divisions of, of people, how they line up, right, tends, that tends to get a little confused, perhaps, or, or, um, or oddly mixed, right, as a result of these, of these two different positions. And it is true that support for statehood has increased over time. 
um, but it's still not overwhelming, right? Um, support for full-on independence a few years ago was clock, clocked in at 15%. Uh, that, has, that has declined. So now it's increasingly a battle between, between statehood and, and commonwealth. And just to wrap up, you mentioned other U.S. territories, islands that are smaller. Are there any other ones that you think will eventually inject themselves into this possible statehood discourse? Or is it really D.C., Puerto Rico, and nothing else that really will move the needle one way or another? Yeah, it's really D.C. and Puerto Rico. And the reason for that is when you look at the population of places like the U.S. Virgin Islands, uh, the Marshall Islands, right, places like this, their populations are so, so small, right, that adding them as states would cause even more imbalance, right, in terms of in terms of the House, in terms of, remember, each state gets at least one, one uh, member of the House of Representatives and gets two senators. So if you're adding a place with just a few thousand people, it, it becomes very hard to make to make that case, right? One, one other wrinkle to add in this debate is it's important for all of us to remember that the House of Representatives is fixed at 435 members. So were you to add D.C. and were you to add Puerto Rico, that would mean, given their populations, that D.C. would get one representative and Puerto Rico would get four or five, depending on the census. Those five or six new representatives would come at the expense of existing representatives somewhere else, somewhere in the, in the 50 states. And one recent analysis suggested that uh, were Puerto Rico to become a state, its House members would come at the expense of a representative from New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Illinois, and possibly Michigan. Who would lose out, right, in terms of the partisan breakdown of the delegations of those states would be up to grabs depending on the redistricting process that would occur in those states, right? Uh, as, they, as they would lose, lose a member, they'd have to redraw the maps, right? Um, so even if those members from Puerto Rico and D.C. were to be all Democrats, right, there's a possibility that with redistricting in, the, in places like New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Illinois, right, that the Democrats might suffer a couple losses, and that is often not part of the part of the debate, right? That there are many Democrats who think, "Oh, yes, right, we get, we would get four Democratic senators and uh, four or five additional members of the House," but it might not turn out that way. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on the Radio.com app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon. 